listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Luke chapter 7 this morning, continuing our study of the gospel of Luke. And um, before we read these 10 verses that we're going to consider today, um, I want you to think about a couple of things. First of all, the the gospel of Luke, Jesus taught uh, last week on the kingdom, the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Mount. As we look at the text today, I want you to see four kingdoms that probably are at play and four kings that are at play here. There is the the kingdom of Rome, um, and Caesar is the king of that kingdom. There is the kingdom of God, and Jesus is the king of that kingdom. There's the kingdom of Judaism, and the institution is the king of that kingdom. And then there's the kingdom of me, and I'm the king of my kingdom, right? I mean, we need to consider that. The text is going to take us this morning into these contrasting and conflicting kingdoms. And we see a man who's very powerful in a very powerful kingdom who comes to the realization that it's not about his kingdom and it's not about his nation's kingdom. and It's not about the kingdom of the Jews. It's about the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus, you are in authority. I submit to your authority. I submit to you as Lord. Why? Because it's not about me and my kingdom and what I want done. It's about you and your kingdom and what you want done. As we read over the text, um, we need to think about these questions. How do you handle suffering and death? And quite frankly, most of us ignore it. Most of us act like it doesn't exist until it confronts us, until it jumps on us, until it jumps in front of us, until it invades our life. How do you handle the kingdom of suffering and death? Secondly, Um, Who do I really think that I am? You need to look at the text because here's a man in the text who thinks he is somebody and he starts pushing buttons and pulling levers and using leverage and calling in favors and wanting to get something done that meant a lot to him. But he recognized that he wasn't able to do that. He thought he was something, but he recognized that he needed to think less of himself and more of Christ. And then finally, what does it take to get into the kingdom? Jesus is going to close out these verses by saying, I have not seen faith among the people who say they're the people of faith, the people who say they're the chosen ones of God, the people who believe that they're the people of God. I haven't seen faith among Israel like I've seen among this Roman Gentile, this centurion. And so let's look at the text this morning, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. It says, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum or Capernaum, however you want to pronounce it, however you heard it the first time. Um, You know, you say it your way, I'll say it my way. If you don't don't say it like I say it, you're wrong. And if I don't say it like you say it, uh, then I'm wrong. And that's okay. Let's just agree to disagree on how we pronounce that city. I don't know that it's an intellectual thing, depending on how you pronounce it, or, or a scholastic thing or an academic thing. Um, but any, anyway, don't, don't put too much, don't turn me off because I said it wrong, okay? Don't turn me off because I said it wrong. And after he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. 
When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Why? Because he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Didn't you see that plaque out front? And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, a different a different narrative now. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Where does a man come up with that understanding? He explains he understands how authority works. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. The only other time we see Jesus marveling is in Mark chapter 6 and verse 6, and he's marveling at unbelief, astonished at unbelief. Here Jesus marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found, oh, incidentally, they found the servant well. Incidentally, this guy was healed. What do we see here? First of all, in verses 1 to 5, I want you to consider the, the desperation. Luke gives us the location. This is the headquarters of Jesus. Luke gives us the location of the situation that's taking place. Luke is writing about real people. He's writing about real places. He's writing about real life. He's writing about real circumstances. So if, if, you, if you want to be certain of who Jesus is, and that's why he's writing to Theopolis. And then he lays out all of these things about Jesus up to this point. Luke is not venturing away from saying, this is not a story. This is not a fairy tale. This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Follow it closely. So they're, they're in this geographical location. And then he gives us a, a little a biographical insight into uh, the centurion. He was, he was a, a Gentile. He was a, a good man. We know from the text that he was compassionate and generous and humble and loving. We also know from the text that he was a man of means who had a valued servant. And his servant was just about dead. And I would imagine that a man of means, a man of power, a man with contacts, a man with influence, a man who had a lot of friends in high places, had called in all of his favors and nobody could do anything for his servant. He had tried everything everything, but then as a last resort, he said, all right, since we've tried everything, why don't we try calling on Jesus? It says in verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus, and you couldn't help but hear about Jesus, especially in, in Capernaum, uh, there was the, the, the talk was everywhere about Jesus. They were having people pass by them. Uh, didn't that guy used to be a leper? What happened to him? He was healed. Didn't they used to have to haul that guy around on the stretcher? What happened to him? Jesus healed him. Didn't that guy used to be blind? What happened to him? Jesus healed him, right? Didn't, didn't he used to be a man with a withered hand? What happened? Jesus healed him. So the, the word was spreading about Jesus, We've tried everything. I've heard about Jesus. Let's give Jesus a call. I don't know if you've ever been in a place in your life where you've tried everything and you, you didn't know what you were going to do. Uh, sometimes and many of you have been to that place where you've tried everything medically and, and it didn't work. And you tried everything financially and there was no way to restore your life financially. And you tried everything relationally, but 
the relationship ended and now all there are is nasty emails or text messages, if that at all. We tried everything, tried everything spiritually. Nothing seemed to work. Here, here's the point. There are many situations that we face that we generate a solution for in life. There are many problems that we come across and we take our credit card or we take our reason or we take our friends or our contacts and we come up with a solution to that problem. But there's one problem that every one of us is going to face that we don't have a solution for and that's death. This guy had no solution. This guy had no friends. This guy had no help. My servant is going to die and he's probably, the death rattle is probably being heard as he's sucking wind. And he's probably moments away from death. Let's call Jesus to come and solve the problem. We don't face that reality. Imagine the doctor walking in when the baby's born. They take the baby, they're flipping it around like they're going to break it. How many of y'all have been in the delivery room and watched that happen? And you're like, would you please take it easy with my child? It just came into the world. I'd like to keep it a while. And they're just flipping it around and turning it upside down. And, and, and imagine the doctors in there and they lay it on that, that hot light. That's, you know, they, they put them in that tanning bed, lay it over there in the corner. And all this stuff's going on. And the doctor, you walk up, how, how's, how's my child? This is a beautiful child. This is a perfectly healthy child. But your child is going to die. Has anybody ever said that to you? But you know what? Just as certain as that child is healthy and just as certain as that child is beautiful, that child is destined to die. Every one of us has an appointment with death, but we don't want to talk about it until it slaps us right upside the head. The truth is, if we're honest, as we look at this man and his servant in a desperate situation, all of us is in a desperate situation. We're worried about politics and we're worried about inflation and we're worried about holidays and we're worried about the World Series, but there's, there's something bigger afoot that seems lost on us and that is that we are all sick and we are all dying and there is not one single thing that any of us can do about it. I speak at weddings. I had to speak at one yesterday. I've preached a few funerals in my life. I've stood... Many times where I stand now and in other churches that I've had the opportunity to pastor. And a lot of times folks look at you like you got a third eye. They look at you like, what is this guy's problem? The things that he's saying. I had the opportunity to proclaim the gospel at a, a wedding ceremony yesterday. And folks just kind of look at you like they're mad. And like you're lying or like what you believe is a fairy tale. And I look back and I think, you think I'm stupid, but you have no answer for sickness and death. You have no answer. You have watched your parents die. You have watched your friends die. You have watched your Spouses die, you have watched your children die, and we know that death is a reality, but we have no solution for death apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no hope apart from 
the life that he lived and the death that he died and his resurrection over the grave. That is our only hope in death. This man finds himself helpless. One writer said, Philip Ryken said, sooner or later his situation is one we must all face because we're all under death sentence against our sin. This is the need behind all other needs and the sum of all our fears. One day we're going to die unless there is some way for us to gain life after death. And we stand tall and we talk bravely and we supposedly stare death in the eye and defy its advances, but it moves methodically to one and to all and pays its wages to one and to all who dare face a holy God alone. So that's the situation. Here's a centurion that has made everything happen that needed to happen in his life and in his world and all of a sudden he comes to a situation that he does not have an answer for and he's tried to find an answer everywhere he could look and he turns to Jesus. So we see the location, Capernaum. We see the, the situation, a satyrian and a, a sick servant. And, and we see in the text this commendation. And I think it's extremely interesting because I think we think more like the Jewish elders. Right? I think we think more like the Jewish elders. Here's what they said. And, and by the way, these elders were important men. These elders were, were not some shabby group. They were highly respected. They were men with social, spiritual, and theological leverage. And the text tells us that they came to Jesus and they were pleading with Jesus and they were reasoning with Jesus. And here's what they were saying. This centurion, although he's a, a Gentile and, and although he's a, a part of, of Caesar's kingdom, this centurion deserves preferential treatment. This centurion deserves preferential treatment. He is worthy. The, the, the Greek word, I know it doesn't matter to you, but it matters to me. The Greek word is axios there, and, and it means to weigh. Worthy means to weigh. Worthy means to um, uh, assign matching value. It means corresponding value. What this man has done is worth as much as what we are asking you to do for him. Right? What this man has done, he, he's done some good things, and we're asking you to, to balance it out because, because what we're asking you to do is not more weighty than what what this man has done. He's bringing this much value now. You give him some value that's equal to what his need is. He's worth it. He's worthy of it. Balance the scales, Jesus. This man has done some things to weight the scales in his favor. Now you need to do something to balance those scales out, Jesus. This man brings value to this transaction. We're coming to you with a request, but the basis of the request is the value that this man brings to the equation. They're doing human mathematics. We do human mathematics all the time. Don't, don't get lost in the, the concept of mathematics. What we do is we add and subtract, and we say, hey, this is worth this. Therefore, if this is worth this, when this happens, and I ask Jesus to make the thing that's happened to me go away, I've got, I've got something that I can withdraw from to appeal to him to say, there is a reason you ought to do this and it's based on my merit I think that's the way we think spiritually a lot of time he loves our nation he's a patriot 
right? He loves our nation. He built the synagogue in Capernaum. He, he bought the bricks. He bought the mortar. He hired the labor. How much better does it get? As I read that, I thought about this as I was driving down the road. Religious pride will create categories of self-justification. Religious pride will create categories of self-justification. When bad things happen, we get angry. Why? Because we think we're worth more than that. We just do. I was driving down the road last night. I spent two days just pouring myself out. When I wasn't preparing for a wedding, I was preparing to preach today. And I don't know what's wrong with my truck. But all of a sudden, the windshield just decides to fog up whenever it wants to. I don't know if it's because my wife's talking too much. I don't know what's going on. She was talking to her mom, and maybe it was a sign from the Lord. You know, I don't know. But I'm just driving along, and I'm just like, what is going on? I, I, I don't know if you know what it's like to drive at night. with, And everybody's got their bright lights on. When you're 62, you think everybody's got their bright lights on. You know, so I'm just like flashing everybody. Just turn your brights off, you know. And then your windshield's fucked up. And then I'm taking this sweater, and I'm just wiping the windshield. And I'm turning the defrost on, turning the heat on, putting the windows down, putting the windows up, put, turning the air conditioning on. Nothing clears the windshield. And I'm thinking, Lord, if you really cared about me, you'd clear this windshield so I could see to drive home and prepare to preach this morning. And I just made it all about a, a, just this spiritual thing. I deserve better than that. I just deserve better than this. Why is this happening to me? Right? Do you, you ever get that way? I just deserve better than this. I've just invested too much in things that should matter in eternity. And I'd like to have a little leverage and get some things to go my way every now and then. I don't even know why I have to drive a truck. This is a 2004 truck anyway. If you really love me, I wouldn't be driving an 04 truck. Trail Boss looks, looks really nice right about now. That's the, way, that's the way we think. When bad things happen, we get angry because we're worth more than that. And we come to God to make a withdrawal, a rational, mathematical withdrawal. This man has done enough, is good enough, has invested enough, is deserving enough for you to balance out this situation in his favor. Our negative reaction to negative circumstances is often based on the fact that we think we deserve better. We are worth more than this. We have done certain things that should give us faith, that should earn us favor, that should give us leverage with God. I've earned some leverage with you, God. It's time for you to show up and give me what I deserve. That's what these Jewish elders in a merit-based system were doing to Jesus. And many times I think we do that when we pray. Here is the desperation. What do you do when you've done all that you can and nothing so far has worked. What do you do when there's nothing else that you can do to help the people that you love? That's, that's a terrible feeling. What do you do when you've done all that you can do to help the people that you love and you still can't help them? 
you cry out to Jesus for help. That's what you do. It's interesting, the word heal is the, the Greek word diasozo. Uh, the, the word sozo, this may stick in your mind, means to save. Would, would you please deliver my servant? Would you please save my servant? The word sozo means carry someone to safety through a dangerous ordeal. Take my servant to safety. He comes to Jesus and says, would you take my servant to safety? If you're not in Christ today, you're in danger. You're in peril. You may take your last breath here and spend eternity separated from Jesus Christ in hell forever and forever. And he alone has come to save. He alone can deliver you from the dangers of eternity without him. This physical request points to a deeper spiritual reality. Whenever we face, listen, whenever we face an unsolvable dilemma, let us be reminded that we have an ultimate dilemma, that every one of us is lost in sin and we cannot save ourselves. And we need Jesus Christ to save us. Christ alone saves. And so as we look at this desperation. Let me just give you a thought maybe that you can take home with you. The key to the kingdom is faith in the king. The key to the kingdom is not coming with some supposed leverage or some human mathematics that says, hey, I've done this, therefore would you do this for me? A bargain with God. No, the key to the kingdom is not leverage with the king. The key to the kingdom is faith in the king. So we see this desperation. There is this recognition of helplessness and an inability to do anything to correct the situation before them. And if we have faith in Christ, we have faith in him because we recognize that we have no ability at all to do anything to save ourselves. And he and he alone saves. And we must come to him in absolute dependence. You can go to verse 6 and you can see, and Jesus went with them. I think that's interesting. We see the compassion of our good king. Jesus is listening to their faulty reasoning, and he didn't bring down lightning to strike them. He understood that they just, they just were wrapped up in an institutional system that owned their soul. They would never get it. But it seems like he understood that this centurion understood Something It says in verse 6, And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, another crowd comes. Some friends come, not these elders. The centurion sent friends, saying to them, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He says, Just say the word, for I am a man under authority. Let me, let me just give you some thoughts as we think about this man's realization. This man goes from desperation to realization. Number one, here's what he's saying. I, I have lived my life based on my strategy and my authority. That's what he said in verses 1 to 5. I have lived my life based on my strategy and my authority. This guy had power. This guy could tell somebody to go, and they would go. You go, go pick me up a, a Monster Energy drink from the 7-Eleven. There aren't any 7-Elevens around here. They, they would go, and you better have it back here at 947 promptly, and they would walk in the second it, it hit. This guy had all kinds of power. This guy had all kinds of context. I have lived my life on, based on my strategy and my authority. At, at the beginning of, of the narrative, we see the 
the centurion moving and shaking. He's a mover and a shaker. That's probably not a term today. But he's making things happen. And he had a desire to make good things happen. And he was going to use his power and his reason and his human mathematics and all of his means and his connections and his, his relational mathematics and his favors. He was going to call them in. He was going to use his strategy. This is what we're going to do. He had him into the board. He's drawing it up. This is what we're going to do to deal with this problem. And it normally worked. He could control outcomes. He could make people. He could break people. But now he's come to the realization that he is in a realm where he has no authority. Do you hear me? He's come to the realization that he is in a realm where he has no authority. He has no power in the spiritual realm. You need me to go to Lowe's and get some bricks and some mortar and some two-by-fours? I can do that. But when you're talking about the realm of sickness and in the realm of death, that, that is the divine realm. He's trying to make things happen that cannot be negotiated, that cannot be navigated on a human level. I'm out of this league that I'm trying to enter into here. This is way above my pay grade. I have no power in the realm of sickness and life and death. I don't have anybody in my contacts to take care of this stuff. I have lived my life based on my strategy and authority. That's not for those who trust Christ. Do you, do you hear me? That is not for those who trust Christ. It's not us strategizing and deciding. The second thing that we see in the text is this. I must live my life based on humility and submission. I must live my life based on humility and submission. This is absolutely transformative. Here's what he's saying. I'm not going to send a bunch of people to represent me to tell you why you should give me what I want and how you're going to, to axios, how you're going to balance the scales, how I'm going to bring all of this weight to the transaction. Therefore, you're going to take the weight of healing and you're going to put it on the other side of the scales and give me what I deserve. He's, he's radically transformed. Rather than strategizing and operating on his authority and getting all of his minions to do everything that he wanted to do, he finally throws up his hands and said, I'm not even worthy for you to come to my house. I'm not even worthy to go to you and have a conversation with you, but I am surrendering to you. And, and the text bears this out that, that not only is the centurion in a, a brand new realm, it was a realm or a dimension that Jesus rarely experienced. The Son of God marveled. Here's what the man said. He said, don't trouble yourself. The word, the word trouble means don't annoy yourself. Don't vex yourself. Jesus, don't let you healing my servant cost you anything is basically what he's saying. I don't want to bother you. Let me just inform you this morning. You probably already know this. The only way that God, the only way that holy God can justly pour out healing and grace to sinful humanity is by troubling himself. 
if there is anything good that comes to you and me from a holy God, it is because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has troubled himself. What we need to understand is the only thing that sinful human beings can receive from a just and holy and righteous God is wrath. You say, is he a bad God? No, he's not a bad God. He's a good God. He's a loving God, but we are sinful. And for God to be just, God must pour his wrath out on us. But because God is loving, God sent his son, and God poured his wrath out on his son. His son paid the penalty for our sin. So God, in his justice now, can justly love us. And as the great judge of all humanity, he can look at you and me and say that we are perfectly righteous based on the work of his son, not based on our worth, but based on Christ's worth, not because we're worthy, but because Christ is worthy. So if any good comes from a holy God to you or me, it is because of the trouble Christ went through. Let us not forget that. He didn't understand the death, burial, and resurrection. Our healing, our salvation, our diasozo is lavished on us because the wrath of the Father that we deserved was lavished on His Son. He troubled Himself that we might become sons and daughters and experience healing. Secondly, He said, I am not worthy. That's why I sent the most important people, because I knew that I wasn't worthy. I needed somebody to go and give me leverage with you. I sent people that I thought would have influence and could get me what I wanted from you, but I know that I am unworthy. I know, I know that I'm not worthy of your time. I know that I'm not worthy of you walking out to my compound and what has happened in this man's heart, and maybe he owned this before this passage was, was ever experienced or recorded. He basically was saying that I am humbling myself before you. I'm submitting myself before you. First Peter 5, 5. Humble yourself beneath the mighty hand of God. Submit yourself to him, and he is submitting himself to him. This is a powerful Gentile who could have ordered Jesus Christ killed with a simple word, who could have demanded that Jesus do what he wanted, and he's now transformed into a humble servant when faced with the impossible. He becomes helpless. That's transformation. That's transformation. Here's what he said. He said, but say the word and let, or say the word and allow. If it is your will, my servant will be healed. He's basically putting his faith in Christ. He's putting his faith not in his righteousness and his works and his worthiness and the leverage that he can bring to the transaction, but he's saying, Lord, I know that you are powerful and I know all that you have to do is say the word and I trust what you say because what you say becomes reality. We know in Genesis it was God who said... And it became. It says over and over again, and God said, and God said, and God said. And we know that Colossians 1, 15 to 20 tells us that Jesus Christ is the creator. But we also know that this man in Capernaum, if we just go back in Luke, listen to these verses. Luke chapter 4 and verse number 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. They understood some things about Jesus. They understood that there was something unique about his word. And if you go to verse 35 of uh, Luke chapter 4, but Jesus rebuked them saying, be silent and come out of him. 
Jesus just speaks the word and things become reality. We see the same thing in verse number 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands, he speaks, and unclean spirits come out of him. And reports about him went into every place and the surrounding region. Verse 39, and he stood over her, Peter's mother-in-law, and rebuked and spoke, and the fever left her. And in verse 40, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. And he rebuked, verse 41, them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. In chapter 5 and verse number 5, they're out fishing and and Peter's like, Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. But at your word, I will. At your word, you say so, I will do it. And you come to chapter 5 and verse number 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Jesus speaks and things become. Chapter 5 and verse number 24, we, we see the same thing, this man who is paralyzed. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, because Jesus has already said your sins are forgiven. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before him. Jesus speaks and things happen. His word has authority. His word has power. He is the Son of God. He is God of very God. Chapter 6 and verse number 9, And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm or to save life or to destroy? And after looking around all of them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. What, what is this Jesus who is coming and speaking? He knew this. This was happening in Capernaum and the surrounding regions. So, so this man is coming to the place rather than bringing all of his leverage and all of his weight and all of his reason and all of his human mathematics and, and everything that he could to get Jesus to do what he wanted him to do, which is what a lot of times we do in prayer and why we don't pray because we're mad at God because he didn't do what we thought he should have done and things didn't work out because we were strategizing, philosophizing and, and, and doing all the things that we do. This is where we need to be. This is where we need to be. I trust you, Lord. I trust you. You just, you just speak. You are God. You don't have to come see my servant. You don't have to walk in the room. You don't have to walk on the compound. You don't have to be within a million miles of where my dying servant is. But you are God. You are omniscient. You know all things. You are omnipresent. You are everywhere. You are sovereign over all things. You are Lord over sickness. Just speak the word. That's faith. He also tells us in the text, and here's what he's saying, as he talks about authority, and this is amazing. Jesus was amazed at that. But I understand how authority works, is what he's saying. I understand how authority works, and I submit to your authority. I am a man of authority. I understand how it works. I submit to you as the supreme authority. I don't have time to cut through all the lies about authority. I don't have time. I don't have time to do that. We live in a world that is just like, say what? Say, I can't do what I want to do when I want to do it. 
And that's just, that's just all of us across the board. We're just, we're just a bunch of angry people. Don't want nobody telling us what to do. I don't want my wife telling me what to do. She don't want me telling her what to do. My kids don't want me telling them what to do. Nobody wants to be told what to do. Why? Because we have an issue with authority. I, I, I'm like when I, when I do a wedding, I have to be like, husbands, love your wives. Your wife, submit yourself to your husband under the Lord. Can't say submit. Right? It's just dirty words because we don't understand it. We don't understand it. So, so we, we've got all of this, we've got all of these, these walls just built, these layers just built that tells us that authority is bad. The only way authority is bad is if God is bad. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then his authority is good. His authority is good. He says, I'm a man in the process, in the progression of authority. The word authority means operating in a designated jurisdiction. That's what it means, authority. Operating in a designated jurisdiction. As, as a centurion, I'm operating in a designated jurisdiction. And I understand that Caesar, Caesar can say something, and somebody under Caesar can take what Caesar said and tell somebody under them what Caesar said and tell somebody under them what Caesar said and tell me what Caesar said. And then I can call in the 100 guys that I manage, and I can tell them what Caesar said. And you bet your bottom dollar that what Caesar said way over there in Rome or wherever he's hanging out is going to happen over here in Capernaum because Caesar is in authority, and no one dare defy the authority of Caesar. And no one dare defy my authority as a centurion because I am bringing to my men the full weight and authority of the Roman Empire. He said, I understand authority. I understand authority. But I also recognize I'm entering into a different kingdom where I have no authority. There's a different king, and his name is Jesus. So I come under your authority. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, you can, you can say I'm a believer, and you can say I have faith. But if you look at the authority of Jesus Christ, and if you look at the authority of God's word, and you say, nah, not for me. Oh, I'm trusting Jesus. Hallelujah. You know, I'm so sorry. But faith finds itself in submission to the authority and to the word of the one that it says it is trusting. You may be here today and you say, I reject God's authority. I will be my own authority. And by the way, if you are your own authority, you have rejected God's authority. I will not listen to God's word. I will listen to my word. Rejecting God's authority, listen to me, is not freedom, it's bondage. Rejecting God's authority is not freedom, it's bondage. Doing what you want when you want is not freedom. It's abandoning a good king in a good kingdom whose authority is loving, protective, life-giving, Gracious, joyful, beautiful, and peaceful. And you're exchanging that for the authority. For the authority, please hear me. If you reject the authority of Jesus Christ and all of the good that goes with it, you are exchanging it for the authority of another king and another kingdom. And that king is a tyrant king. And he has a godless kingdom. And he, his authority is brutal and domineering and abusive and shameful and deceptive and destructive and cruel. 
there is the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. There is the kingdom of light and the kingdom of life and the kingdom of death. And they are vying for your submission. And you and I are submitting or else we are submitting to a good king who has lovingly gone to great trouble for us as opposed to submitting to a tyrant king who will put you through unbearable trouble for him. It's, it's ingrained in our DNA. Adam and Eve had that problem. They're like, I don't think we want to do what God wants to tell us to do. I think we want to be in charge. And I think we're just going to have our own way. And Satan convinced them that they were having their own way when essentially he was having his way. That's what he always does. Anytime we break free from the clear, loving, beautiful authority of Christ and His Word. It's like standing on a, a trap door and it's going to collapse on you. It, he, 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 boy, I'm telling you, he's, he's got, see these things in, in the atlas over here? They make the room smell good. You know what this room smells like without those things? We've got this room back here and you walk in and you hear something go, Psh! like, what is that? That's something to alter the the real scent. Satan does that. <laughs> He's like, Psh! that smells good. That sounds good. That feels good. That looks good. Yeah, I think I'll do that. It's a lie. He, his name is Abaddon and Apollyon. He is death and destroyer. He's come to, come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus has come in all of his authority that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. I want you to understand today that if you are not submitting to Jesus Christ and his word and his authority, that you are submitting to a kingdom who has a tyrant king. And his goal is to utterly destroy you but he will anesthetize you at the door. But you're in for a freak show, a horror show. It's going to get ugly. This man said, I am under authority. He saw Jesus. He said, I want to submit to your authority. Only you can heal. Only you can deal with death. I'm coming under your authority at your word. Finally, verses 9 and 10, Jesus gives us this observation. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd and following him, he said, I tell you, not even Israel have I found such faith. And again, this man was healed. Jesus is like, say what? I mean, Jesus is probably like, I can't, I can't believe this. This is, this is shocking. This is amazing. This is highly unusual. For somebody to say, this is highly unusual. I wonder why there's a narrow path. I read something this week. Somebody said, if Jesus had preached the way we preach now, they would not have crucified him. This is unusual for people to really trust him. This is unusual for people to say, whatever you say, Lord. This is really unusual for people to say, I come under your authority. Now, listen to me. While it is unusual, it changes everything about our life. It changes everything about our heart. It changes everything about our perspective. Jesus is shocked. He's shocked. He said, even among the spiritually elite chosen people of God, I have not found such faith. What is this description of faith that we see in the text? Let me describe it for you. This faith understand, understands how God works and submits to him. So faith is submissive. 
It's a faith that sees its own unworthiness. It's undeserving. It is a non-leveraging faith. I'm not going to God and reminding him of all that I've done so that he will give me what I want. And I'm not mad at God when he doesn't give me what I want as though I deserve, I've gotten something that I don't deserve. It's a faith that has complete confidence in the power of his command. Not because it produces outcomes, but because it is he who is speaking. And it is a faith in the text that tells us it's found in a Gentile, someone outside of the covenant community. This is shocking. That man who wasn't brought up with the Scriptures all of a sudden understands more than the people who have the Scriptures understand. What is the definition of faith? The definition of faith is this. It is abandoning our trust in our works and merit and any thought of deserving salvation. How did you walk in today? You know, abandoning our trust in our works and merit and any thought of deserving salvation and relying totally and without reserve on the person of Christ and the authority of his word. That's the definition of faith. It's not mine. It's, it's Philip Rikens as well. And oh, incidentally, they returned home and found this man healed. I would ask you, do you have faith? Uh, not have you joined the church, not have you uh, experienced some ritual. But are you trusting Christ? Are you trusting Christ? Do you have faith in his word? Have you come under his authority? And has it transformed how you live practically? Because it should. Let me, let me just give you, give you three thoughts. Um, number one, true faith is helpless. True faith is helpless. I'm helpless. I'm helpless, God. I'm helpless in the face of sickness. I'm helpless in the face of death. My, my, my passion is for my family to come to know Christ. My desire in sharing the gospel is that people would believe because I don't want anyone. I don't want my wife. I don't want my children. I don't want my grandchildren. I don't want you. I don't want your children. I don't want anybody to die without trusting Christ because if you die without trusting Christ, you are entering into a realm where there is no leverage to bring to bear and it is over. You are done. I would beg of you today to put yourself in a posture of helplessness. I'm telling you, if you and I will do that, it will change our attitude. There, there, in, in church, there are so many that come in troubled. There are so many that come in angry. There are so many that come in with a, different, a million different walls and barriers put up. And I'm, I'm just saying, if we could just scrape all of that stuff away and get down to what really matters, I am helpless before a holy God, and that's okay. It's a good place to be. I'm helpless. Secondly, secondly, true faith is hopeful. My hope is not in my good works or my effort. My hope is in Christ's finished work. The father looked at the son and said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It is finished. Christ is seated at the right hand of the father forever making intercession for us. Don't 
try to drag your moldy works up into the presence of God and think somehow he's going to be obligated to give you what you want. You need to come into the presence of God with Jesus Christ, our advocate, who stands pleading our case before the Father. I'm with him. My hope is in Christ. My hope is in Christ alone. Thirdly, true faith is humble. True faith is humble. A lot of folks will say, no, 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 don't you, don't you say, Lord, that will be done. <laughs> you tell God what you want. That's faith. No, it's not. No, it's not. I, I, I trust him because I'll tell you what, on any given day, my, my will will get me and you and the rest of this world in a big mess. True faith humbles itself before the authority of God and humbles itself before the word of God. Lord, you speak. You make things happen when you speak. I'm going to submit your word. I'm going to submit to your authority. He marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. I'm reminded of another verse. It says this, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And I would ask this question, is there faith in this room this morning? And you need to answer that question, and I need to answer that question.